Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. In the beginning, God made everything and it was good. Our fellowship with Him was very good. But our rebellion shattered every relationship. Our sin brought the curse of death. We can see that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Our world is broken. We long for our redemption. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into our world. He lived and died and rose again before returning to his Father's right hand. Soon, Jesus will return. Every eye will see him, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb slain for sinners who overcame, and he will make all things new. Even so, come. Lord Jesus. Well, good morning, Grace Church. We are so glad that you're here with us, worshiping together today. Go with me in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, Book of Revelation. We are in, back in chapter 1, and for our study this morning, we'll be going through verses 4 through 8. The title of the message is Dear Saints. And this is like the second half of uh, the introductory message that we began. Pastor Wise opened the message for us last week. He looked at verses 1 through 3. And we are just taking the next half of this introduction. We, uh, we're going to be looking through here. This is, this is what is considered the prologue the introductory remarks of the letter. Now, something interesting about this book, Revelation, if you were to sit down and just read it, or if you were to listen, to, if someone else were to read it out loud, and you were listening, you could go through the entire book in around an hour and a half. Uh, unless you listen to things faster, like double speed, like I like to do, then you could finish it much quicker than that. Um, but in that span of time, about an hour and 20 minutes or so, you could hear or you could read God's ultimate triumph over evil, the culmination of the end of the age, and all our attention would be set, would be fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's uh, just take a look at this second half of the introduction to this book, this letter. Follow along with me, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord, our text for study this morning. Let's pray as we begin. Father in heaven, you are absolutely glorious. You are perfect in all of your character, perfect in all of your beauty, your holiness, and you have revealed yourself to us in your word. So Father, I pray that through your spirit, you would help us, help me, as your word is opened and read and heard, help us to understand it and obey it. Lord, we worship you. Thank you for your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, uh, let's go through this account here. This, this introduction to the book of Revelation. Number one, who is the writer of this letter, this book? Who's the writer? And that is the Apostle John. The Apostle John is the one who wrote this letter. We see it here in the beginning of verse 4, John. Well, who's John? John, this is John uh, Zebedee. He's the disciple, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. And remember the word apostle means messenger or sent one that is sent by Christ to bear a testimony, bear a message. Specifically, this message is about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. John, he had a brother. His name was James. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, you remember back a few weeks ago when we looked at Acts chapter 12, we learned that James, the brother, that's the brother of John, he was martyred. That's Acts chapter 12. We just went through that a few weeks ago. A few key highlights from John's life. John was a witness of key moments in Jesus' life and ministry, such as when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus to life in Mark chapter 5. John was there when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain in Mark chapter 9. John was there in the moments before Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. Uh, the Gospel of John is all recorded. There's this, this character who comes throughout the book as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and we believe that that is John the Apostle. Throughout the Gospels, James and John are often mentioned together which has led some people to think that you know, uh, James and John, James mentioned first, so some people have, have taken that to understand that perhaps John was the younger brother. Now, I'm the older brother, so uh, I can't totally speak to that, but there, uh, that's, some consider that James, uh, John was younger. Remember, uh, they were trained as fishermen. The brothers were called to follow Christ, and they left their nets and followed him. And their nickname given by Jesus was the Sons of Thunder, Mark chapter 3, due to their loud and outstanding personalities. They, would argue, they argued about who would sit at Jesus' right and left hand, and they asked Jesus to call fire down from heaven, and yet here in this letter, we don't have any of that. He simply says, John, 
So uh, we, we can understand that John is older. He's older, and this is reflective of his humility. Now, as an older, faithful servant of Jesus Christ, we saw that even a little bit in last week's message from verse 1. John the servant, the servant of Jesus. This is who? This is the one who is recording, writing this letter. Now, that's number one already, so keep, keep up with me here. We're going to go pretty quick. Number two, out of a three-point message, what do you think? Uh, number two, who are the readers? Don't worry, the last point's going to be the long one. <laughs> number two, who are the readers? Uh, this, this is John. He writes to the seven churches in Asia. Seven churches in Asia. Now, there's going to be an image come on the screen. It's a map to help us get an idea of who are these churches, where are they, why is this so significant? Now, first... There is, we need to understand that in, in the book of Revelation, numbers play a, a key role. They often symbolize essential truths. And we see here already the number seven comes up twice in our text. This is a, this is a significant number. The number seven signifies a completeness or wholeness, perfection. We know this uh, back from Genesis 1, that in six days God created the heavens and the earth, Filled it with all of creation. And on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. Complete. He, his work was finished. This creation work was finished. So that's why we, we know that this number seven means complete or perfect. So these seven churches here, um, uh, and just a, a note as we go through Revelation, the number seven comes up several times. There's seven spirits, seven angels, churches. So this is a number we're going to see throughout our study. It is representative of perfection. John is writing to the seven churches in Asia. This area was a Roman province called Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Several cities, uh, several, these were key cities in mailing districts in this region. They were the key for communication, and they would have this travel, this circuit road that trade could go through and mail and communication. You can kind of see that circle there in the map. They were strategic city centers with trade and communication routes between them, and they could expand inland and beyond. Now, we're going to look a little more in depth about these seven churches in Revelation uh, chapter 2 and 3. So if you're wondering, well, I feel like there's more we could say about that. There is. Don't worry. We will get there in a few weeks. What's important to note about this, uh, these seven churches is that they are representative of the universal church. That is, they are a representative of all believers, all churches, for all time. That's at number seven, perfect, complete. So God, through John, has a message for the church. It gets us to number three already. What is the message? This is where we're going to spend the most of our time this morning. What is, God, what is this message for these churches? Well, Letter A, it is first a message for blessing. Grace and peace to you, John writes. Grace to you and peace. So John begins his address to these churches with a pronouncement of blessing. He's calling for free, unmerited love and favor from God towards the church. Now when grace and peace are paired together like this, as it comes often in the epistles, the, the letters, it is a reflection of the full 
love and favor and blessing from God, like a, like a fountainhead pouring forth from God full of blessing. The word grace, it means favor that causes joy, kindness, goodwill shown, undeserved and unexpected return. That's grace. Peace means tranquil rest deep in the soul. And this is belonging to every believer through the assurance of their salvation in Jesus Christ. Having been recon reconciled through Jesus Christ and received him by faith, every believer is given genuine, lasting peace. That's what John is simply calling for the church here. Be, be blessed. Have grace and peace. He's demonstrating the heart of a shepherd here, an, an elder, a pastor. He loves the church. He loves these churches. So what, how does this affect us? Now understand, Christian, believers, every single blessing we have in this life comes from the grace of God. The supreme gift of God's grace is the forgiveness of our sins. That's peace with God himself. Everything we have, we are held together, kept, preserved every single day by the grace of God. In the gospel, moment by moment. Do you have this kind of peace today? Do you have this rest for your soul? This, this message should encourage us. We, we can have this peace and this grace. And we want to help you find that grace and peace today. And I'll tell you where you can find it, in Jesus Christ. By trusting in him alone. This is grace and peace not found, it's not found outside of our, not within us, not outside of us, not in our circumstances, not in our physical health, not in our careers. This grace and peace is rooted and built upon and found only in God. That's what this message is about. The call for blessing. Have grace and peace. Letter B, this is also a message from the triune God, the Godhead. We see this again in verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him, that him who is, who was, and is to come. This is God the Father. God is eternally existent in three persons and the one God. This is from the, from the 1689 London Baptist Confession. They say it this way. The divine and infinite being consists of three real persons. The Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and our comforting dependence on Him. This is God. So first we see God the Father in this section. God is outside time and space. He's the great I Am. God is not limited by creation, but He is totally free. God is eternal. Nothing takes Him by surprise. God has always existed. He alone holds all power and glory. He's all present. When you and I, when, when we breathe our last, when we go to our appointed end, that's the grave, God will still and forever be ruling in heaven. That's he who is, God is present. He who was, God is eternal. He's constant. He who is to come is God. He knows the future. He has planned it. He's purposed it. And he carries out his plan according to his will perfectly all for his glory this is god who is who was and is to come the father 
Then we see also in this verse the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is the next member of the Trinity. This is God the Holy Spirit. Now remember, I just mentioned a second ago about the number seven. Perfect. Completeness. This is in reference to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who is before the throne of God. God the Holy Spirit is also perfect and eternal with God the Father. And is present in God's glorious throne room. Now, this reference here to the seven spirits also uh, calls us back to the Old Testament. Remember, way back in Exodus, the other half of the Bible, uh, God gave his prescription for the tabernacle, this tent where his presence would go and travel with the people of Israel. One of the, the, uh, the instruments that God prescribed that they make, one of the um, like pieces of furniture in there, was a, a lampstand with golden lamps on it. And they were, they were to build this perfectly according to God's exact specifications using pure gold. It's a reflection of his holiness. And in the tabernacle, the, these lights were to burn day and night to illuminate the tent for worship. This reference here to seven spirits actually is a callback to Zechariah chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. You can just jot, jot in your notes Zechariah 4. The people had exiled out. The temple had been destroyed. And God brings his people back to the time of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. This is Zechariah 4. And what God says is, okay, Zechariah, send a message to my high priest. Send a message to Zerubbabel and encourage them to keep building the temple. So he gets this vision, and Zechariah's vision includes a lampstand, just like we would have expected in the tabernacle, and it has seven lights on it, and it's burning. And Zechariah says, what does this mean? Why, why am I seeing this vision? And the angelic messenger says to him, tell Zerubbabel, you're going to finish building the temple, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is a callback. John would have known his Old Testament. So as he's given this vision, these, these seven spirits, it is a callback to these seven lights in the tabernacle and in the heavenly vision by Zechariah. It's clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit. And we see also Jesus Christ. That's verse 5. And we have a threefold description about Jesus. It's not exhaustive, but are, these are essential characteristics about God the Son. What do we see first? Jesus, he's called the faithful witness. Jesus is God, and Jesus always represented God truthfully. Everything he did, everything he taught, every miracle, every ministry, everything he did was true and trustworthy. He's faithful. And the word witness here means martyr. Literally, Jesus was faithful unto death. John, as he's writing this letter to these seven churches, they were scattered across Asia, and by this point, still part of the Roman Empire, but they were experiencing persecution. They would, they would continue to experience persecution and suffering. John highlights this key aspect of Jesus to help encourage the believers that, well, Jesus suffered, he was martyred, and he was faithful. So church, focus on Jesus and be faithful. He will hold you through in the midst of suffering. Don't shrink back. Jesus held true to God the Father and suffered faithfully going to the cross. So church, let's follow Jesus' example. That's why John includes this. 
Listen to what Jesus says in John 18 at his, his false trial by Pilate. Verse 37, John 18, Pilate said to him, So, you are king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. That's that faithful witness of Jesus. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Are we listening to Jesus, the faithful witness, this morning? Well, we're opening his word, so that's already an essential start. We have God's word. John also says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life, always obeying every will, command, and law of God perfectly. But Jesus went to the cross. He laid down his life. He was crucified, murdered, buried. On the third day, though, Jesus rose, rose from the dead, alive and victorious. That's, that's what John means right here. Firstborn of among the dead. That is Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, he is the exalted one. He's the preeminent one. There's none greater than Jesus. He conquered the grave. Death cannot touch Jesus anymore. So Paul says in Romans 6 verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He's the firstborn, the preeminent one. Death cannot touch Jesus again. You and I, we face death. We live in a fallen world, marred by sin. That's why we all suffer and one day go to our appointed end, the grave, but not so for Jesus. He went one time crucified, one time in the tomb, on the third day risen, and now he's alive forevermore. He's the firstborn of among the dead. And Jesus, John also tells us, he's the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is stronger and higher than all earthly powers, all empires, kingdoms, and governments, any political leader. No person, position, or political entity could ever come close to touching the kingship of Jesus Christ. That's what John says. He's the ruler of kings on earth. Can't top this one. It is the right of Jesus Christ to sovereignly rule over every creation. And that rule is never, ever, ever in jeopardy. Everyone, even kings, must answer to Christ, the King of kings. And they will on the day of judgment. Now here's where the Bible is so helpful for us. It's what Alistair Begg says. The Bible is so helpful to us when we just read it. And uh, that's what we're doing. The Bible is helpful to us because maybe, maybe you're wondering, like me, okay, I read this here in my Bible that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth, but what about the news? What about what country or that country or this attack or that attack? Well, if Jesus really is the ruler of kings on earth, why doesn't it look like he's the ruler of kings on earth? Good question. Do we, do we feel that tension? Well, let's... Let's address that for a moment. Jesus is the supreme ruler over everyone and everything. Yet, we long for the day when everyone and everything is brought into conformity under the righteous, good rule of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So the writer of Hebrews, he helps, the writer of Hebrews helps us. Hebrews 2, verse 8 says, God the Father has entrusted everything to the Son, given him all of creation. Listen to what he says, Hebrews 2, 8, in putting everything under his feet, in, in putting everything in subjection to him, that's Christ, he left nothing outside his control. In other words, Jesus controls everything. There's nothing apart from his rule. And yet at present, here's the helpful part, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So for believers and churches who are experiencing suffering, doesn't this proclamation from John give us great hope and great joy in the Lord? That yes, Jesus rules over all, yet the reason we don't see everything brought under his lordship perfectly yet is because God is patient. He's long-suffering He's waiting, working out the salvation of his elect. He's waiting for all to come to repentance and faith. Have you come to Christ in repentance and faith? Don't wait another moment. We all have an appointed end. Jesus is waiting patiently, and, but he will not wait forever. He will come again, and we see that even in our text. This message is not only about the triune God, but it is a message overflowing with worship. We see this in the second half of verse 5. After this great proclamation of the, the triune God, John describing the glories of Christ, he just goes into praise. He doesn't, even, he doesn't ask anybody's permission. He just goes for it. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest, to our, his God and Father, he just goes, now we've got to ascribe to him glory. He just can't help it. But when John says here, to him, he's, like, he's helping us. All right, people, let's look again at Jesus. Let's look a little more closely. Look again. Jesus, the one who loves us. Jesus Christ loves his sheep. He loves his people, the church. The love that Jesus shows us is always perfect. Jesus loves us with perfect love that exists within the Trinity. Just how much does God love you? Well, listen to what Jesus says. He tells us, John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. That's what Jesus says. Church, I want you to know, as we're reminded by John this morning, the Lord Jesus loves you. He loves us. We are greatly loved by Jesus. John says to him who freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus demonstrates this love that he has for us by going to the cross, going to die. Now this word freed is very interesting. As I was studying this word freed, he freed us from our sins by his blood. You know this word is used, it is used to describing untying, unbinding, removal. As someone who was bound is to be released. But do you know another time that this word is used? The same Greek word is used of Lazarus in John chapter 11. When Jesus calls forth Lazarus from the tomb and he says, unbind the grave clothes and let him go. That's the same word. Free. So quite literally what John is saying is the one who loves us, Jesus Christ, he has freed us. He has taken our sin from us and on himself, unbound. 
separated from our sin. He's taken it. We don't have to live in sin anymore. Freed from the power of sin, freed from the penalty of sin, and one day freed from the presence, the very presence of sin. Each of us, we're bound, chained, captive prisoners, dead in sin. But Jesus came to earth, incarnated, taking on full humanity, entered into our humanity to free us, to unbind us from our sin. Have you been set free from your sin? He's taken it, taken our death. Christ taking God's judgment for our sin upon himself through his precious blood, spilled on the cross to take it that I might go free. Our sin does not get to hold us captive to death anymore. Jesus takes our sin from us, loosens the grip of sin and death over us, and sets us at liberty. Church, only the blood of Jesus is sufficient to save us from our sins. Not our works, not our righteousness, only the precious blood of Jesus. The invitation is come. Come, be washed in his blood. Turn to him in faith, and I put my full weight down on Jesus, and I trust you. Lord, you are enough to free me from my sin. That's the response of a believer. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, that's through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That Jesus went to the cross to bring us back into right relationship with God the Father, that we have peace. Not only has God freed us from our sins through Christ, but look at verse 6. He has made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. He makes us, here's what Jesus does for us. He sets us free, and then he takes us home. He takes us and makes us citizens of his good kingdom. We're not left homeless anymore. We were prisoners of our sin, but Jesus takes us, and in his life and his love, he invites us to live with him. Live under his good and perfect rule. He's the king. We are his subjects. To live with him is in his eternal kingdom forever. Not just to live with him, but to worship him. That's what the priests would do in the Old Testament temple, wouldn't it? They, gave, they were given special jobs. God entrusted to them, minister in my temple, minister in my tabernacle, handle my, my artifacts with holiness, Proclaim my name in righteousness. That's what the priest did, and, and that's what Jesus says we've become. That Jesus, he frees us, he sets us in his kingdom, and he sets us there to worship. To serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to serve God our Father. To behold him in his holiness, to behold his glory and grace. Jesus sets us free to worship and to be totally happy in him forever. And that's why John says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So do you, do you want to add your voice to this amazing declaration of worship? I'm, I'm calling us as a church. John says, describe glory. That, that is to recognize it. Do you see, do you behold 
God is supremely beautiful. He's full of majesty and wonder. He's abundant in strength and power. And he's worthy of all of it. Give to the Lord the chief place of worship in your heart. He is absolutely worthy of it. And he's worthy not just today, not just this afternoon, not just while we eat pancakes after church. He's worthy forever and ever and ever worthy of glory and worship. And do you know, he's also worthy of our worship when we're in times of trial and suffering, when everyone is healthy and or when sickness or difficulty surrounds when suffering and persecution harm us, when people hate us because we hold fast to the name and message of Jesus. He's still worthy of our worship. Jesus is still supreme even when the furnace doesn't work next door. Okay, that was a test for me this week. All right, get the space heater out. And I just, why is that thermostat not working? I, I get all flustered. And then I, I remember, didn't I just read? <laughs> He's the ruler of kings on earth. And he's worthy forever and ever to have, to have glory and dominion. Okay, I'll fix the furnace tomorrow. And I didn't even fix it. It was Josh. Josh Tatum came and fixed it, wired it all. And Josh, can you come back again tomorrow and do more wiring? He wired it again. But you know what the point is? That forever and ever, Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is forever worthy of my worship and praise and thanksgiving and devotion. We will never find anyone or anything better to worship than Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing, nothing else will do. Nothing will ever satisfy the longing of our hearts. Only Christ. And then John says, amen. Let it be so, church. That's what he says. Let this be so. So be it. Oh, I, I love worshiping Jesus with you, with our church. And we are partnered with churches locally and globally to see the name of Christ proclaimed and worshiped. And isn't this what we want for all peoples? And we absolutely do. It's what I want for you. It's what I want for me, for our church. Ascribe to Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. I think that's the offering scripture Russ, I just took your verse, sorry. That's okay, we'll get it again. Um, so here, so we've seen now that this message, is or this message is overflowing with worship. And letter D, it's a message of warning. It's a message of warning. And it starts, so now even, even here in this section, verse 7 and 8 marks a turning within this same section. He says, behold. Literally, look and see, people. That's what John is saying. Eyes up, behold, Jesus is coming. John takes another turn, and in this passage, he's directing us for in, from Jesus' first coming, now addresses his second coming. Jesus, uh, John says he will come with clouds. The clouds are representative of God's glory, the, the Shekinah glory. Think about in the Old Testament, the people of Israel would wander in the wilderness and the cloud would lead them at day and the pillar of fire by night. And when the cloud stopped or the fire stopped, that's where they set up their camp. They'd set up the tabernacle and the cloud, the presence of God's glory would be there in the tabernacle. And John says that same cloud of glory 
is going to come when Jesus returns. He comes with the clouds of God's glory. Jesus will come with the full weight of God's glory. And every eye will see him. Just in case there was any doubt, there will be no mistaking the second coming of Jesus. Jesus' first coming was relatively humble, if you think about it. Relatively unknown. There were some shepherds, some magi, but not the second coming. There's going to be clouds, and every eye will see him. No one will be able to make any excuse, and neither can you or I today. The message is proclaimed, so we can either accept the message or reject. We can either trust in Christ or we can reject Christ, but there's no excuse. There's no middle ground. Just a humble, faithful messenger. So here, John says, not only will every eye see him, even those who pierced him. He's talking about the Romans pierced him at the request of the Jews. Overall, all in all, there's none exempt. So John warns. He warns the people. There's going to be wailing, mourning on account of him. But why? Think about this why. Why does John say there's going to be wailing? It's verse 7. All tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Well, think about it. If you're going about your daily life, you're ne- if you think about it, for someone who's not a believer, someone who's never trusted in Christ, and the Lord Jesus returns, and he brings with the full weight of God's glory, that there's no excuse. What have you done? Have you accepted my son or have you rejected my son? If you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, there's only judgment. And that's what John is highlighting here. The tribes of the earth will wail. They will mourn. There will be grieving on account of him because they did not trust in Jesus Christ, God's provision of salvation. Jesus came the first time. He came to save his people from their sins. When he comes again, Paul says, he comes to judge the living and the dead, 2 Timothy 4. So there's two types of people. Either you have had your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ through faith in him alone, trusting in his all-sufficient death and resurrection, or you reject Christ and his salvation. But if you reject Jesus now, when he returns, you'll be like those who wail, who mourn, who literally lament and grieve. So today I call you. There's an opportunity for forgiveness. I call you, I plead this morning, take the offer of the gospel. Flee from the judgment of God and find shelter in Jesus. And John says, even so, amen, so be it. This is the way that God has appointed the end of creation to be. Judgment. Even so, it grieves. So believers, we long for our non-believing friends and family and nations to hear of Jesus and trust in him. We, We long for people to be saved. That's why we share the gospel That's why we send missionaries. But make no mistake, God's judgment is just and righteous because he's holy. And the only thing that separates me from someone under the judgment of God is God has been gracious to me. God has been gracious to me and he's been gracious to you to save you in Jesus. So we don't elevate ourselves over, we humbly plead with 
Those who have not yet come to Christ and say, today, please, I urge you, trust in Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the last point. It's verse 8. That this message is all about Jesus Christ. Verse 8 stands out. You may see it in your Bibles. There's a quotation mark around verse 8. That's because, if you will, Jesus himself has taken to the microphone. Jesus himself moved to the declaration from Jesus. So think about all these rich truths that John has unfolded for his readers and, and for us. Jesus takes center stage, and this is what he says. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So first, Jesus himself says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is quite literally the first and the last. All things are held together by him. Now think about, think about this. How is this sermon, how's this sermon working right now? It's not open, that's not open for evaluation and critique. I'm talking about like the form of communication. Think about this. Letters together make words, and words make sentences, and sentences make communication that makes preaching. Sentences. But think about this. John says Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, A and Z. Knowledge, wisdom, truth in words and letters. Jesus reveals to us that he is the source of all truth and wisdom and knowledge. He is literally the first and the last. All of creation is fulfilled and pointing. It all points to Jesus. So why would we try and live our lives as though Jesus didn't matter or we don't have to listen to him or he was just a good teacher or just a good prophet? That's such a miss, such a low view of Jesus. That's not how Jesus describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega. This is when he says the Lord God, that is the divine approval of God. In other words, Jesus is Lord of all. May we submit our lives to him. Now, did you notice in here the last bit of verse 8, that same phrase, who is and who was and who is to come, that was described of God the Father in verse 4? That's because this attribution of eternal deity is, is being attached to Jesus Christ because Jesus is God. This makes sense for us that Jesus is fully God. And then he says at the end that Jesus is the Almighty One. In the Old Testament, this word was uh, translated as the Lord of hosts. And this phrase, the Almighty, occurs nine times in the book of Revelation, and it's used interchangeably between the Father and Jesus Christ. The Almighty, he is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, all-wise, he is all-present, he is strong. Jesus is strong to save, strong to save us from our sins, and He's also strong to judge. He has to. He's the only one who can judge all of creation rightly and be true. This is Jesus. And now just think about this for a moment. This little section, verses 4 to 8, really is a snapshot 
of what to expect throughout the entire book of Revelation. That it's written to churches, that there's blessing, that it's all about Christ, his atonement, his death, his resurrection, but also it's a message of judgment. And it points us ultimately back to Jesus, the one who is victorious to reign forever and ever. Which is why John's going to say at the end of the book, even so, come, we want Jesus to return. And he will return soon. So this is a letter written by John. It's to be read by the church. It's a message for blessing. It's full of grace and peace. It's a message from the triune God, a message full of worship, and it's a message of warning, and it is about the one Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? I want you to know Jesus, to turn from your sin and trust in him alone and give, give our lives to Jesus. And so the question is, what is your next step to be ready for Jesus, the return of Jesus Christ? Can we help you take that next step today? Worship team, you, you can come and let, let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, you are the glorious one. You are the one in whom all things hold together and all of creation, even our own lives. We know that we were made to worship you and be satisfied in you alone. Lord, I pray that you would help us take your word to heart that your word would bear fruit in my heart and life, that I would live purposefully every day, that we as a church would live well every day that you give us, anticipating Christ's return, worshiping him moment by moment, helping others to follow Jesus, warning of the judgment to come, using us to preach the gospel among all peoples. God, thank you for your grace. And the peace that we have, that our sins are forgiven, that you've given us free and full life in you. So Lord, help us when the trials come and when difficulty comes to be faithful, just as you are so faithful to us. Lord, we love you and we worship you. We pray this all in the glorious name of King Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.